In this episode of 92i Talks, comedy writer, producer, and director Nell Scovel sits down with John Oliver, host of HBO's Last Week Tonight, to discuss her new memoir, Just the Funny Parts, and a few hard truths about sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. The conversation was recorded on March 20th, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. I think deep down we all know that's literally too kind. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for coming out uh, this evening uh, to listen to Nell speak. Uh, I love this book. I've read it twice. Um, I, the first time I read it before it was published, I laughed out loud so many times. So I don't really laugh out loud much. That might have been the saddest sentence that came out of my face. But I, I guess so, with so often when you work in comedy, you read... Uh, read comedy, you kind of just mentally acknowledge it all the time, going, funny joke, I've just enjoyed that. <laughs> and so it was, I was having like it, the physical response that humans are supposed to have to something they really enjoy. Um, it's constantly funny. Uh, I, I, I really hope um, you all buy it, read it, and pass it around. Uh, oh, that's not how the book industry likes people to read, right? <laughs> recommend it and have another person, but I, I, I think the publishing industry is fundamentally dead, but <laughs> it, it, if, you, if you could recommend, pass, pass it on to someone and then say, if you enjoy it, or even if you don't, buy your own fucking copy. That would, <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> that's, I think that was four rounds of applause from people who work in publishing. <laughs> uh, so, Nell is... Uh, an amazing uh, human being. She's incredibly funny. She's worked on some of your favorite TV shows, some of which you may not have even been aware that she was responsible for. She's also responsible for a whole bunch of comedy on TV that she doesn't directly work for. She's, her fingerprints are all over our show. Um, she was immensely useful to Tim Carvel, who runs our show, uh, in mentoring him as he was starting off. We leaned on her hard. Um, when we were staffing up our show, not just in the writing department, but all over the show. Uh, she's been an amazing resource um, for us, and I'm very excited to talk to her tonight. So please welcome the great Nell Scoville. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nell Scoville, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I was just, I was just explaining how much I liked this book, and it was probably best not to do it in front of you because I know that you are almost British in your lack of enjoyment of compliments. <laughs> well, I, I was a little nervous about being here tonight. Yeah. Um, but I had coffee with my friend Dustin Hoffman, and, <laughs> and he Christ. said, "Don't worry, <laughs> it'll be fine." That was. Yes. Yeah. That, <laughs> Jews haven't been that blindsided since Crystal Knock. <laughs> Do you, know, do you know what Dustin Hoffman calls this place? What? The 92nd Street. Why? <laughs> I, could, I, I tried to give him an answer to the question why, but he just wouldn't listen. Oh, I heard uh, Dustin Hoffman is making a sequel to Kramer versus Kramer. You know what it's called? No, I don't know. Kramer versus the pasty-faced, smug British jerk-off. Mm -hmm, yes. That's definitely All what right, his I'm eyes done. were telling me. No, I'm not done. <laughs> no. Mm -hmm. Now, Dustin Hoffman did uh -huh. once lure me to a hotel suite. It was horrible. He made me sit through Ishtar. <laughs> <sighs> there was the, the last time I was at uh, 90 Secretary Wide, Dustin and I were meeting. 
for the first and final time, I believe. Oh, can, um, can I explain how we know each other? Yes, let's okay, do so that. We have a mutual friend mm -hmm. named Tim Carvel. Yes. Um, I've known him longer. It's not a competition, but if it were, <laughs> I would win. Yes. And um, Tim was a magazine writer, just brilliant and funny, and I kept saying, you should write for TV. And eventually he got a job on The Daily Show, and I would stop by and visit him. And at the time, he had this weird office mate who when I walked in, he would just nod, and then he would sit with his back to me, and Tim and I would visit, like there was an invisible wall, and um, that weird office mate. It was me. That yeah. was you. It yeah. was me, yeah. I didn't even know you were British for like the first year. I'm not, I'm just so deeply in character, I can't get out again. <laughs> I was born in the Bronx in 1954. Uh, <laughs> um, so, what I wanted to start off by was actually talking about your mum, because that was the first time on the, uh, when I was reading this on the plane this afternoon, uh, that was the first time, again, rereading, rereading. Uh, there was just some world-class parenting, just in general, that she gave you, but I think my favourite, this is a really illustrative moment of how to bring up a child, uh, was you writing here, at my third grade, parent-teacher conference, the teacher complained that I made too many jokes during class. She asked my mother to talk to me about toning it down. My mother said she passed the message along, and she did on my 40th birthday. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> she waited 32 years until I was an established comedy writer to tell me that my third-grade teacher had notes on my personality. <laughs> that, is, that is a pretty good example of how to parent, isn't it? Just act sometimes as a sponge and say, you don't need to hear that shit right now. <laughs> she was remarkably supportive. And I tell another story about Meryl Marco asking me to contribute an essay about having a narcissistic mother to um, a collection. And I said, well, why did you think that? And she said, well, you know, a lot of funny women have right. narcissistic moms. And I truly had the nicest, warmest mom. But I felt a little guilty saying that to Meryl. <laughs> How, mu how much like, was comedy a, like, a feature of your day-to-day like, -day interaction as a kid? Like, did you use it the way that like, lots of people do as basically, I say lots of people, again, I'm talking about people in Britain, we like to use it as a defense mechanism to stop any kind of natural engagement taking place. <laughs> were you always looking for a joke when you were a kid in terms of any interactions? Well, my whole family was funny. Right. My, my father was funny and... Um, my aunts were funny. There's this great story about my Aunt Pinky, who um, was passing by my sister Alice, who was on the couch reading Little Women, and she just tapped her on the shoulder and said, don't get too attached to Beth. <laughs> <laughs> and Solid, Aunt Pinky, they, solid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And th there was a darkness, and Aunt Jane was one of the best dirty joke tellers. I mean, she loved opera, she loved ballet, she was this very cultured woman who also loved telling fart jokes. Right. Uh, which was the best, and th they both got um, positive reinforcement, a lot of positive attention for being funny. So it never occurred to me that women couldn't be funny. Yeah, of course. Of course, <laughs> I know. We fucking hope not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that probably doesn't occur to anyone until they're taught it, that, right? I don't think you naturally think so. see two or three-year-old boys seeing a girl do something funny and say, nah, I don't know, I would prefer it if James did that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you know, Kurt Vonnegut just boiled it down to seven words. Some people are funny, some are not. Right. Yeah, that's, ba yeah. that's basically the case, isn't yeah. it? When you, like, if you traffic in the language of, if it's valued in your home, it's yeah. probably a currency that you're going to want to trade in, in some, to some extent. So I want to talk about mentors first, because uh, first, let's talk about mentors that you had, and then I think it'd be worth people knowing the extent to which you have passed that on, mentoring oh. other people. So who, who do you think, um, who were the key mentors to, comedically for you? Because you talk about a couple in here. Right, well, Barry Kemp, who created both Newhart and Coach, um, hired me to work on, on Coach for um, three seasons, and he really taught me how to write a sitcom. And he um, gave great advice. He's the one who taught me that writing is not an act of creation, it's an act of discovery. And, and you know, ideas don't just come out of your head full-blown perfect. You, you workshop them and, and right. you, you try things and you go down different paths and if you hit a dead end, you go back. And, and start again. I love the way that you put it like uh, an ophthalmologist. Basically, when you're redrafting jokes, it's just about, right, right, better? How about now? Yeah. How about now? Is that better? Is that better? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, and you, like, it's one of the things I love about this book is you've basically kept everything over the years in terms of correspondence and notes for everything. So there's so much kind of primary source correspondence with people that were giving you really important advice as you were going through some tough times? Well, now someone said to me, well, did you hold on to this stuff because you thought someday you would write a book? Um, that would be a very confident person. <laughs> it was actually the exact opposite, which is I thought TV would go away at any moment, and I wanted proof <laughs> that I'd worked on these okay. shows. Uh, yeah. So I held on to all my scripts and all my notes. Well, who, was the, who was the first person that you made laugh and you thought, or I don't know, this is maybe just like transposing my own experience, yeah. but who, did, did you ever have a moment where you made someone you really respected laugh and, and, and you thought, oh, maybe I can do this, even if it was just that? Not my third grade teacher. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when I wrote this script and, and, um, for It's Gary Shanley's yeah. show, and they flew me to L.A. to get notes on it. And Gary stopped by the office and said, you write like a guy. And, you know, at the time, that was the highest compliment. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But, but, uh, but I mean, it, he did not... He, mean, he meant that as an extreme compliment, right? It was well, I think he that... meant I wrote hard jokes. Yeah. You know, and I wrote jokes where his friend comes over and Gary's working in the kitchen, and the friend says, do you need an extra pair of hands? And Gary says, that would double my sex life. <laughs> yeah, so, that's a hard joke in every sense of that, the word, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it was, I, I, love, I love that line uh, where uh, some, one of your colleagues at Spy said, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for TV. <laughs> Which, yeah. that, that kind of was the window that opened you up to a whole new world, though, because it wasn't much longer after that that you were sending scripts to Gary Shandling. I grew up in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, very um, New England, and, you know, the only sense I had that people wrote for television was the Dick Van Dyke show, which had been in black and white, so I didn't think people had done it since. And... Uh, 
I just wasn't aware you could write for TV. Right. Get that Tim, Tim Carvel, our friend, also had that same kind of experience, though, because he was growing up in Michigan, and there didn't seem to be a pathway to how it was possible for a person to go from living their life in a non-Hollywood manner, uh, and then all of a sudden finding yourself in a Hollywood studio being paid for your work. Is that, do, you, do you think that's one of the key problems, that people just can't picture a path that's going to take them where they want to go? I think it's changed. I, I think back then we didn't have this cult of the showrunner. Like that, th there wasn't even a word. The, the term showrunner came about because so many um, managers started piling in as executive producers that you needed a word to. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. So they just devalued the It used to be the executive EP. producer was the showrunner, and then. Oh, oh I didn't, didn't know that know they that. had to come up with a new term because they completely fucked up the old one. That's right. <laughs> and. They could have called all those people do-nothings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. But. Instead, they just changed the term. That's yeah. great. Do you, do you, do, as part of it, in, even in, uh, in your example of the Gary Shandling story, you talk about like finishing your draft, it being put in an envelope and then flown <laughs> away. Do you think part access uh, has become easier for people just by dint of the fact that they can be found online in a way that it was much harder for you to be found in New England, the newest England, of course, old England. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that, we don't need to get into that. It, it, was, it was harder to be found before your voice could carry online. It was, and you absolutely needed to know one person right. in the business, right. and I just um, knew one person through a mutual friend uh, from college, um, whose name is Rob Lezebnik, and he still writes on The Simpsons now. And he um, offered to send my script to an agent uh, who, who uh, passed it along. But today, it's, it's easier to meet those people, because you can go on Twitter or right. LinkedIn and, and reach out and... Uh, it's how I found Jill Twist right. on Twitter. So, so when, when we were starting the show, we, uh, uh, we, uh, we asked Nell for help um, finding people that were funny because you, not just so that we weren't going to get the fire hose of uh, agents yeah. uh, giving us the same old shit. <laughs> um, or some not shit. Uh, and so, uh, Nell, you, you act, had actively been monitoring people that you found funny right. online. And that was thank right. You for so that. there, there um, Laurie Kilmartin, who's this wonderful writer on Conan, had clued me in on this um, funny woman named Jill Twist, and I read her uh, um, jokes, which are like um, bananas are so clicky. Yeah. And I feel sorry for gluten-free pigeons. Yeah, that's a great joke. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for them, and also slightly irritated, because is it celiac pigeons, or you're just feeling a bit <laughs> bloated today? <laughs> so I, I uh, DM'd her, and I said, have you ever thought of writing for TV? And she um, did some stand-up, and she was tutoring in uh, SATs, and she said, sure. And, but you read your submissions blind. Yeah. Yeah. We read, so we do read them blind, but then the, the, we do. It feels important to do that, but, it, uh, but then so that you, can, you need to kind of still thumb the scale underneath that, right? You need to make sure that what you're yes. reading blind is, is right. more representative than the natural sample that the current system would give you. That's the problem, uh, right? <laughs> and and um, Jill wrote your new oh, book. Oh, that's right. Jill is also an author as of 
Sunday night. <laughs> yeah, Jill, Jill, Jill wrote the rabbit book. So, yeah. <laughs> right, you've both written books. Yeah. <laughs> you've both. Uh, but, is Jill's here? Oh, Julie. Ju uh, Ju uh, Julie, who also you Yay, helped us find. Jill's here. Where's Jill? <laughs> we can't see. Jill's, Jill is, I think, sinking deeply into her chair now, going, physically I'm here, emotionally I left 20 seconds ago. Oh, Ju Julie, Julie, you helped us find as well, Julie Wiener. Who, right. Ju Julie's here. Julie, stand up. Fuck you, stand yeah. up. You're gonna, try and, you're gonna try and throw Jill under the bus. <laughs> um, uh, but, but no, I guess Julie was at Vanity Fair, and I used the same line on her, which was, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for television. <laughs> I can't just gloss over the facts. <laughs> that. <laughs> Cards are being handed out with what looks like tiny silver buckets. <laughs> Is this... I don't know exactly what's happening, but I definitely like it. Uh, but you... but, but uh, I, there are two right questions. Oh, but if, oh yes. But oh. if anyone was going to stand up and pitch their entire movie and then ask a question like, do you think that would work? Mm -hmm. Just make sure you write the whole plot down on yeah, the card. Yeah, that's right. Thank Freehand. you. Uh, but I guess, so the, like that, that, that advice you had of, I don't mean this is an insult, <laughs> but you could write in TV, you have been giving people that advice at length over yeah. the last decade, right? Right. Thank and, you for and that. <laughs> I, I tried it on Alexandra Petri, who's this writer at the Washington Post. She's hilarious. And she said um, she actually was insulted, I think. Really? <laughs> She's like, no, I'm very happy here. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, so, uh, writers, uh, let's talk a little bit about writers' rooms, because okay. you've been in a lot of them, and uh, they've mostly produced incredible content, but they've probably... Uh, been functional in to varying degrees of success. Uh, the Simpsons, right? That must have been an incredible, not just room to be in, but an incredible time to be there because it was pretty early on. Right. It was the second season. I watched the premiere on TV and I loved it so much. I called my agent at home, which is something I've never done since, and said, I want to work on the show. And he was like, Really? And I said, I think it could be something. And he was like, I think it will be off soon. So um, he, I got a freelance assignment for the second season. There, there, at that time, there weren't a lot of writers who wanted to work for this weird-ass garish cartoon. And um, I went in and pitched two ideas. And uh, one was Homer eats blowfish and thinks he's going to die. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, I had no idea that you'd written that. It's one of my favorite episodes. Oh, that's that. so nice. <laughs> yeah. It was, I, there was a, a really great story in here about, uh, I guess, what particularly happens in writers' rooms. Like the, because there's um, amazing glimpses of uh, jokes that didn't get into things yeah. and, and drafts that didn't make it. So you get a sense of what, uh, what you ideally had seen. Uh, for something and then maybe how it turned out. And also, you get a sense of the jokes that probably shouldn't have made it but were really enjoyable at the time. Because there was some... D the darkest stuff often right. is just because... Uh, I get, Colbert once called it like a, the escalation of shock in a writer's room, that there is there are things that happen in there that probably should never see the light of day. But I loved that line. The Grandpa Simpson oh line. Oh, my God, that line was great. So if you don't know the episode, right, it's, you, you describe what ha happens. 
a Homer's blowfish and thinks he's going to die. Oh, you did. That's right. <laughs> no. no, he has um, 24 hours to live, and he makes a bucket list. Yeah. And um, sadly, the end of Act Two is he gets thrown in jail because yeah. <laughs> he's speeding on his way home to Marge and the kids. And the third act is this race against time. He's got to get home. There's a little parody of The Graduate in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's... <laughs> That's going to be poisoned for me forever. Uh, but there was, yeah, there was one glimpse that you put in there of someone wrote the joke for Grandpa Simpson, which was too dark to get in, but I really loved it, of him looking at Homer and saying, I know the greatest tragedy is to outlive your children, but it doesn't feel so bad. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, even the fact that that was pitched as a joke for a network sitcom. That, that was pretty amazing. I guess, was there any sense of people fighting for that joke, or was that one of the moments where... Oh, we knew. <laughs> <laughs> we, it's, no. sometimes, sorry, go on. Well, it is that thing, if, if you are a comedy writer and um, no one's ever said you've gone too far, yeah. then you probably haven't gone far enough. Yeah. And if they constantly say you've gone too far, you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> we had that. We, I can't remember what the joke was. We had that this Sunday when we, we found one joke really funny and Liz Stanton, our, our EP, real EP, not bullshit EP. Yeah. Uh, she was laughing really hard. I think innately we knew that we couldn't... I, I wish I could remember what it was. We knew that it was not fit for human consumption. And she, she was still laughing and then we said, yeah, we can't do it though. And she said, oh yeah, because of people. Went, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Because of people. <laughs> <laughs> the group that we don't currently belong to. <laughs> we, did we did have a whiteboard dedicated at, at Murphy Brown to the lost laughs of Murphy Brown. Oh, really? And, yeah, if, if you really loved a joke that you couldn't convince people to put in the show, you could write it on that board. <laughs> oh, that's great. There was, yeah, um, there was a story I was going to tell there and then I thought better of it. Uh, because of people. We'll talk about it later. Um, did Mother Teresa really speak at your graduation? She absolutely did. Holy shit. Yeah, and she um, told all the women that the greatest gift you could give your husband was your virginity. <laughs> and, and I was like, where was she freshman week? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, how many people laughed at that? Not, not... <laughs> I think, I don't know. Oh. What else did she talk about? Oh, that's... I... What was the message? Or was it just mainly... I've mainly come to say virginity's the key. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, uh, there's a, a really wonderful moment where you describe, uh, I guess, how a laugh feels to you as a writer. And I wonder if that spoke at all to the kind of addiction of deciding to write comedy? Because you, you, this is how you describe a laugh. You say, uh, laughter is a sign of impact. That impact may be fleeting. A laugh may be over in the wink of a president's eye, but for me, that moment is bliss. And that really stuck with me, because I guess, when, when did you realize that laughter to you was, that, was like crack that you were going to chase in some form for the rest of your life? Oh, I don't... Hmm. There's um, that great quote from A Thousand Clowns by Herb Gardner, which is, um, if 
things aren't funny, then they're just what they are, and then life's just a long dental appointment. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I think, you know, it was always like, what's the twist? How can we find the laugh in this? But you never wanted to do stand-up. I guess that's... Yeah. Why is that? Why did you... Did you, you Oh, now I just became self-conscious that I'm on stage. Oh, sorry. Oh, why did you do that? Yeah, well, you're objectively funny. That's just, that's a, it's, it's, comedy is subjective, but not when it comes to you, Dale. Yeah. Well, well, one of the reasons, actually, I did want to write this is there are so many great books by, you know, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler mm -hmm. and Amy Schumer and Mindy Kaling, and they're performers, and a lot of us want to be funny, but don't want to be front and center. Because you, so you've written, for like, you've written for characters that you've created, but you've also written for... Uh, for, for Letterman and for, for President yeah. Obama. Look, how, have you found, how have you found writing for other people's voices, even if you didn't particularly find them funny? How do you decide, I'm going to need to get 60% of Nell in here into someone <laughs> else's voice? Well, the craft mm -hmm. is, is figuring out what their voice is. And, um, you know, Letterman was a really easy voice for me. It's... Yeah. it's cranky old man inside me, there is a cranky yeah. old man. Yeah, definitely. But not inside me. Yeah, well, um, yeah. That's... And... <clears throat> uh, mm -hmm. Now, President Obama was fun to write for because he's a sitcom character. Right. He's the leader of the free world who lives with his mother-in-law. <laughs> right? I mean, that, I always yeah. thought, like, this is a guy who doesn't always get what he wants, mm -hmm. although he's the most powerful man on the planet. Yeah. And, and so that seemed like a fun thing to play with. And you wrote for, you wrote for him for years. Well, for the White House Correspondents' Dinner and yeah. the Al Smith Dinner. Um, I guess he was slightly unusual as a politician. In that lots of, lots of presidents have been funny. You could even, as difficult as it is to say out loud, Trump, Trump is not... Here's the thing. There's the caveats here. He's, he's a fun... He is a funny man. Outside of... Yeah. Before all of this happened. Yeah. He is... He knows where laughs are in a sentence, right? He knows how to make people laugh. What he was weirdly less good at is actually telling jokes at that Al Smith dinner because what he was telling there sometimes were not even anything resembling a joke. It was just being yeah. mean. Well, he had one good joke about how he didn't get it that Michelle Obama gave a speech and everyone loved it, and then Melania gave the speech and yeah. nobody did. And that was that was a good joke. But yeah. then he just devolved, remember, into Although, Hillary hates Catholics. Yeah, even that because that that was a good joke. But I feel like he only felt it worked because there was spousal abuse underneath it. Oh. I think we were laughing at that for two different reasons. He was getting to bully his wife on stage, and he thought yeah. that's funny, isn't yeah. it? And it makes it slightly less humiliation joyful. is <laughs> hilarious. He likes no, that. No, but I, to I a argue fault. in the book that he does have a sense of humor. I just Definitely. think it's. Um, Schadenfreude with a laugh track, and and think. Remember, he did that video of him swinging the golf club and it knocking Hillary over. Mm. Like I think that's his idea of a joke. Yeah. Yeah. So mean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how so? How did you go about getting yourself into like the President Obama voice? Because I guess he, he does have that. You you know he could actually land a written joke that you that you gave him. 
Right, and, and in the book, um, Albert Brooks describes his delivery as like Carson's. Right. And it is, it's very Johnny Carson, he'll repeat funny words. Um, you know, it's mostly situational for him. Uh, I wrote one joke for the Al Smith dinner, which um, Mitt Romney was also present at, and, and Obama says, um, you know, Mitt Romney and I have a lot in common. We both went to Harvard. We both have wonderful wives. We both have weird names. Actually, Mitt is his middle name. I wish I could use my middle name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I loved that, uh, Matt, that Matt Damon joke was an objectively <laughs> incredible joke that was made even better by the fact it was the president of the United States. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, so you had, there were some unused jokes uh, that you submitted to President Obama that's in here. Yeah. Would you guys like to hear John read them? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> these, these were ones that President Obama didn't Chose use. not to do. And so in a distant second place, <laughs> a British person who can never be president <laughs> constitutionally unless the Queen really comes back in a big way here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Right now, we'd love that. <laughs> yeah, that's, wow, careful, careful. So, oh, really? Somewhere in London, her ears just pricked up. So, Corgi's charge! <laughs> uh, uh, um, okay, so uh, let, let's uh, uh, see what you think. I'm not going to do this as an impression because uh, I do not have uh, the performance skills. Uh, uh, welcome. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I know many of you came tonight to see the charismatic leader of North America, but Justin Trudeau just couldn't make it. Good, <laughs> decent joke. Decent joke. He probably should have should, probably should have done that. Um, I, I turned 50 while in office, which meant I had uh, to have my first colonoscopy, and guess what they found? Mitch McConnell. Wait, wait, wait. 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 <laughs> that guy can obstruct anything. <laughs> what? Why the fuck would he not do that joke? That works on every level. That's, that's both a joke and a just a fact. Uh, the Republicans are working hard to change the Constitution. They want to shorten the First Amendment to Congress shall make no law. That's it. Now, you wrote, you wrote, you wrote in here, Congress shall make no law, beat, that's it. Did you write that in for him as if to say yes. you got to... Yeah. Yeah, I was ordering around the leader of the free world. <laughs> no, there's um, I, one joke I wrote for him um, included a punchline, which was just a wink to the camera. So for a millisecond, I was the most powerful person on the planet. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And you didn't know which of these were going to be used at all, right? Well, I had, uh, we would get a script on this Saturday morning, so. Oh, but there was, yeah. I guess the, the thing that I was excited about was that one Matt Damon joke, which I loved. Oh, that yeah. You, like, you weren't sure he was going to do that until he started the well, setup. Can, can you read the Matt Damon joke? I think it's a few pages. Where is it? Yeah, I can read it. Um, I can. Just wait. It's right. <laughs> is it a few pages it's backwards right or here. forwards? It's so good. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, so, this is 2011, he said this. Uh, I've even let down my core constituency, movie stars. Just the other day, Matt Damon. I love Matt Damon. Love the guy. <laughs> Matt Damon said he was disappointed in my performance. Well, Matt, I just saw the Adjustment Bureau, so right back at you, buddy. 
That's so good. <laughs> That's so good. So that morning, the, John Favreau, who's the <laughs> nicest guy and the best writer, who's the, the speechwriter, not the director. Mm. He's also he, fine. It seems like you're really throwing John Favreau the director. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you were saying the nice guy, not like John Favreau the director of The Lion King, who's uh. a piece of shit. <laughs> John Favreau the speechwriter. Yeah. Um, the the good one. Yeah. And <laughs> he um, wrote me that morning and said, "I'm not sure uh, the president's." or POTUS, as I call him, yeah. POTUS is going to do that joke. He thinks it's, it's not very nice. And I wrote back, I've seen the Adjustment Bureau, truth is a defense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, I was quite annoyed by his response to that. Just thinks it's not very nice. Yeah, that's why it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> that's why you should say it if you want to hear a really big laugh. Anyway, I guess, I get that he was juggling other things in his life at the time. It's just, to me, the most important moment in that point would have been the joke. Uh, uh, so he says, uh, uh, so here's another one. Um, if Trump wins, he'll get the nuclear code. I'll give him a hint now. It's the same number that's on my Kenyan birth certificates. <laughs> Again, <laughs> co context has slightly changed that, of course, because yeah. we're all staring into the uh, abyss. <laughs> and yet the joke's strong enough that it's still technically yeah, fun. Um, uh, people ask me who I'd like to see as our next president, which is touchy. It's a little like asking who I want to see as Michelle's next husband. I mean, <laughs> come on, man, I'm still doing the job. <laughs> good. <laughs> Very good. Uh, after all these years, I'm really getting used to living uh, where I work. So post-presidency, Michelle and I are starting to think we might open a bed and breakfast. We're not sure where, but we've already got the name and then the slide. <laughs> there it is. There we go. And... <laughs> And also, this, uh, what a lovely example of how key timing is in comedy. <laughs> uh, um, what else did I have here? Um, did, oh, that's, uh, I, I wanted to go back a little bit to... No, the, you can't the, go back. <laughs> yeah, to, 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 the, to the mental question, because oh, I guess yeah. Arthur Penn oh, uh, was so incredible to you when you were having trouble on a movie set? Do you want to kind of just set up just exactly what was going wrong there? Well, I'll set up too that I, so I meet Arthur Penn back in the late 80s because he directs this movie, Penn and Teller Get Killed, mm -hmm. and I'm assigned um, I'm writing for Rolling Stone and they assign me an article and um, I say in the book you know, I started this interview with Arthur and it lasted, you know 30 years. So um, we were friends and I get this directing job and I write to him and said, will you help me? And, um, you know, it's a little like asking Serena Williams to teach her five-year-old how to play right. tennis. Right. Um, but if she's willing, why not? Yeah. Uh, and he um, just gave me this wonderful advice and it was a, it was a difficult crew and... Um, they sounded like assholes. Is that because they were assholes, Nell? If, if my lawyers hadn't told me specifically oh, <laughs> not shit. to say okay. certain things, no, okay. I would uh, it's just they, have they a much sound, better They response. sounded like assholes yeah. to me. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking, in my opinion, no, they... that that's because they probably exhibited assholy behavior. <laughs> uh, but, but I guess, look, you, you, you were writing back and forth uh, with Arthur, yeah. and there was this one... Uh, email that he sent to you, I guess it was his third point that uh, 
really got to me. He said, close down the field of discussion. Keep it specific. Your concern is the sufficiency of exterior shots. Okay, let's review those. Walk me through the movie. Reframe that. Don't let it be about shots. Talk tone, mood, atmosphere, the ineffable that distinguishes you, the director. And then he says, sorry if this sounds paternalistic. Not my intention. The director's role is mysterious, personal, and must not be reduced only to hardware and its function. There is a quotient of poetry that is not describable. It's in the doing. Love you. Love you, Nell. And I guess it was... It seemed like it was the perfect balance of... A really brisk, practical advice, yeah. a pep talk, um, having your back in terms of saying that these people may or may not be arseholes and then just saying he loved you. That yeah. seems like I was, it, I was so glad that you kept most of these pieces of correspondence exactly because it, it was yeah. amazing being, being able to get into his head and into your head at that time. Well, it's in the doing is you know, the key to making something. Did, have, you, have you found, again, like with the talking about mentorship, have you found that people exposing uh, their appalling experiences uh, or, and sharing in them it somehow bolsters your ability to get through them because you don't feel so alone? Because that seemed to me to be what was happening there. He was kind of giving you a window into, I'll tell you exactly what a nightmare cruise can be. Yeah. You will, you're not the first one going through this, and so you will be able to navigate your way out of it. Right, so... Having issues with the um, the DP, the director of photography, and you know you take it personally. And then I wrote to um, Arthur and said, "What do I do?" And he told me about on his first movie set. He had come from the theater and he wanted to shoot two cameras at the same time. And um, the DP told him, "You can't do that. That's not how we make movies." And uh, I think he called him a parvenu. I'm not even sure what that means. Yeah, neither and, am I. Um, yeah. And uh, in the end, they wrote on the slate, um, shot under duress. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, Arthur's a visionary. He directed um, Bonnie and Clyde, Little Big Man, starring Dustin Hoffman. Oh, Jesus I don't know if you've Christ ever met hell. him. And... Fucking hell. <laughs> he, he has been in a lot of stuff. Maybe he's done nothing wrong. <laughs> no, but I, it, made, it did make me feel better because yeah. you realize it's not... Um, sometimes it has to do with the position, not the person. Do you, do, you, what, do you feel like the most lasting lessons that have been most useful to you have been from good experiences or bad experiences or just a combination of the two? When I started writing this, I thought, well, this is going to be fun to, you know, get back at people who weren't nice to me. <laughs> and, um, I, and as you start writing, you go, you know what? I, I, I want to think about the good things and, and the people who were kind and the people who helped and um, actually let the other stuff fall away. But it's, uh, it's interesting you say that, because but it seems to me that you're kind of almost biologically incapable of not putting a joke <laughs> in within like three sentences. Because even in some of the most painful moments in this book, there's a pretty big joke on its way. So one of the hardest <laughs> I laughed is just after you've been assaulted in here. And there's a really strong joke that I don't want to spoil for people because it's, it's worth reading the appalling assault that Nell suffered <laughs> to get to what was a really Hashtag solid punch. Me too. <laughs> now, when I wrote it this summer, I was... Um, you know, very fearful and, and, and uh, 
when all these stories started breaking in the fall, I was like, get this out. I want to be part of that chorus. It is amazing because yeah. I first read this before any of the Me oh, Too, right? right? It was just, and I, so I'm, I was reading this thinking, holy shit. Yeah. You are taking some big swings here. This will be interesting. And I, I guess it is overwhelmingly a good thing that this is now being released in the context of many other swings. It seems a little tame now compared. I mean, it's one of my concerns that, you know, you've got Cosby and Weinstein raising the bar to the <laughs> point where, no, seriously, if, men, if a man doesn't rape 10, woman, 10 women, he's a gentleman. You know, it's, <laughs> So you can go up to nine women, but it's the tenth woman that you can't rape. I think or the, as long as the boundaries are made clear. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. He really was an innovator, Cosby, in every <laughs> no, way, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, how, uh, what, did, did you, like, in the writing of this overall, did you like, do a pass to joke it up? Or, or were, you, were you mindful of tone during it? Because it is constantly funny. And... I, I realize I say that as someone who may be medically dead inside, but <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is funny all the time, even when you're saying really brutal things and being incredibly honest. Well, I'm an iterator, and so I did. I went over and over and definitely punched up, and I had funny friends read it and suggest jokes, too, and uh, it's... Um, I, I really wanted it to be funny, because I do think um, one of the things I want is for men to read this book. Yeah. And, and to, you know, come for the Simpsons, stay for the feminism. Um, <laughs> but but for the, because for so much of my career, you know, I was a sports writer. Yeah. I love science fiction. I really um, was a great culture fit for these mostly male rooms. And... Uh, tried to blend in, and um, you know, they say they dress for the job you want. I dressed like a little boy and just kind of sat in the corner and hoped they wouldn't notice me. You wanted to be a Dickensian orphan, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Please, sir. Oh, you know, that's... It's, a, it's okay yeah. when I do it. Yeah, I know, I realize that. Um, that's actually not okay. That's not all right. Uh, it's very easy to slip into, and that really rolled off your tongue there, Nell. <laughs> um, yeah, but was there a moment, because I, I guess, to go back to that Blowfish <laughs> episode, I, I, I really was interested in the back and forth between you wanting to go out on a joke and then the notes that they were giving saying, let's let this moment... Uh, be sincere. Feel. Yeah, or you'd, like, you'd yeah. written, like, Marge writes um, a poem to uh, Homer to read. Do you want to, should we read yeah, them? Yeah, that's Can a good we idea. Find yeah, that's a good, let's find it. Is there an index? <laughs> Hold on. Here we go. Okay, edit. The Simpsons. Here, Here it is. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so, so this was... It's, an, it's that amazing moment in the episode where, yeah, so he's about, they're about to go to sleep, right? And she... Right. She... Oh, can I set up, though? Yes. So Homer breaks out of prison. He races home. On his list is be intimate with Marge one last time. And my original pitch is he races up... Um, grabs Marge, and then you cut to them both staring at the ceiling, and she says, well, it's understandable. You're under a lot of stress. <laughs> the men in the room did not like this joke. <laughs> it's because it would be understandable. He was under a lot of stress, Nell. And 
Jesus and, Christ, give him a break. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when someone said, well, maybe Marge could read him a poem. <laughs> so here's what I wrote. Here's my first draft. Yeah. So this was, the first draft was Marge saying, uh, this, uh, this is the poem. Uh, the blackened clouds are forming, soon the rain will fall. My dear one is departing, but first, please heed this call, that I, that always will I love you. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Sorry, I didn't have time to finish the couplet. <laughs> uh, yeah, which is, so that's like what you're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to, like, you, you start a sentence, you're supposed to finish it with a joke. Yeah. And, but they... And sometimes when you write, you go, oh, that's good. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, that's good. Exactly. And then... Undercut the treacle. Right, exactly. And then, so then here is the comparison of Margie's poem in the writer's draft, so on the left, and this was the dialogue that aired. The blackened clouds are forming, soon the rain will fall. My dear one is departing, but first, please heed this call, that always will I love you, my one, my love, my all. And that was it. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the interesting thing for me about both of those examples, both that poem and, and the staring at the ceiling, it happens to everyone joke, is that those are objectively funnier. Right. Yeah. Because like, that's, that's a really great joke, but I guess it was like addition by subtraction. They, that's one of the things I guess we love about The Simpsons, that sometimes yeah. they will sacrifice a joke to make you actually feel something. And it it's became this far more complicated moment yeah. where you just feel bad because a cartoon character is about to die. Yeah, yeah. And, and what were the, so what, what were the variations of the ending as well? Because you had written, God, what was it? it, it right, so there are two things um, that are fun to, it, Homer goes downstairs, and there was always this problem of how does um, Marge discover that he's still alive? And um, Jim Brooks, who co-created the show and is um, just a genius, came up with this wonderful moment where Marge comes down, and at first she rushes to him, and she reaches up. She thinks he's dead. He's slumped in his chair and says, oh, homie. And then she touches his face, and she says, his drool is warm. He's alive. He's alive. <laughs> yeah. um, which is so human yeah. and, and lovely. Throughout the episode, Homer believes he's going to die. So he's telling um, Flanders that he's going to bring juicy steaks. And he tells off Mr. Burns, his boss. And he tells his father that he loves him and right. promises they'll play hacky sack together. Yeah. And the original tag was um, all these storylines coming back to haunt him where, you know, Flanders wants to know where you are with the stakes, your father called, he wants to get together, Mr. Burns called, you're fired. And Homer gets more and more troubled till finally Marge says, you know, you're glad you're alive, aren't you, Homer? <laughs> and he's like, not so sure. Um, but the tag was too long. And so they shortened it to Homer says, um, from this time forward, I'll live every day to the fullest. And then you cut to him on the couch watching bowling and eating pork rinds. Yeah, and, but it's amazing how impactful that was because I can still hear, because all you crunch, hear crunch, is the crunch. sound of the, yeah, and the yeah. sound of the bowling, right? Yeah. You hear the, the pins, you call them pins, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So do we, we're not so different. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you just hear, you hear the clink clack and it just goes on and on. It was, yeah, it was, there's so many parts of that. I should go fuck myself. 
I think we know who wrote that. <laughs> okay, so we have some of your, uh, some of your questions here the, from, the, from the wonderful Silver Bucket. Um, who is your favorite Muppet and why? You, Nell wrote uh, for the Muppets. Yeah, well, for the most recent iteration, Miss right. um, Piggy, she's yes. the biggest star in all the world. And you wrote an amazing storyline for her as well. Well, I, uh, one of my first days on the show, I went up to Bill Beretta, who's the, uh, who directs a lot of the Muppet stuff and also does a lot of the voices. Um, and I said, uh, does Miss Piggy have a tail? And he said... I suppose so, yes. And I said, have we ever seen it? And he said, no. And I said, could we see it? <laughs> um, and he said, sure. So I had an idea, which is um, Piggy's on the red carpet for a movie premiere, and her tail pops out of her dress. Yeah. Um, so she has this wardrobe malfunction. Yeah. <laughs> And, and there's, there's like a, there's a headline on a tabloid newspaper go, Miss Piggy goes full barnyard. Full barnyard. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. In the New York Post. Um, it's amazing how much... And I added to canon. That was yes, the thing exactly. that I was so happy about. Yeah. It's amazing how the Muppets, as, as people who grew up loving comedy, oh. right, how impactful they are. I remember Kristen Schaal's husband, Rich Blomquist, who wrote for The Daily Show for years. When she was in the first Muppet movie, he went to the set yeah. and he met Fozzie Bear. And he was going to go and talk to him just to say, oh, thanks for, you know, you made me like jokes for the first time. Yeah. And so he was kind of going half doing it seriously and hadn't got through this first sentence before he started crying. <laughs> <laughs> Fossey, I just want to say, just, just the timing and the jokes, I loved it. Um, here's another question. You said your aunt told great fart jokes. Do you have a favourite? <laughs> or was it, was it situational stuff with your aunt? Uh, no, she... Uh, let's see if I'll do it justice. Um, there are uh, two women um, who... Wh where should I set it? Uh, they're um, at a department store. And one woman um, holds out her wrist and says, Chanel number five, 85 cents. Uh, <laughs> hold on, or I haven't told this joke in 40 years, or I haven't thought about it. Um, all right, I'll tell a different one. Okay. Uh, little boy's in, in, uh, um, in class, and he raises his hand, and the teacher says yes, and the boy says, do farts have lumps? And the teacher says, no, Jimmy, farts do not have lumps. And he says, and I definitely shat in my pants. It's... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Again, I'll that one. There's something, there's something innately funny about Breaking Wind, and I think I know this has to be true, because I have a two-year-old son, and the first he was about 18 months old, and I was changing him, and I think it was the first time he heard himself fart. It was quite loud. Yeah. And he farted, and he looked up at me, and he went... <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not learned behaviour, that's objectively funny. It's a fun... <laughs> It's a funny sound from a funny place. Were you like, we don't laugh at scatological humor <laughs> in this house? Yeah. Um, this says, is it hard to be funny all the time? It's impossible, right? Unless <laughs> you're a psychopath. Know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which Simpson character best resembles you? Or, 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 and, or what was your best career move? 
Oh. <laughs> Asking John Oliver yeah. to moderate this. <laughs> it's the best career move. Um, uh, which Simpson characters, like me, um, you know, one of my favorite episodes was uh, the substitute teacher, where oh. he hands her the sheet that says, You are Lisa Simpson, played by Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> 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 the, the, the ghost of Dustin Hoffman. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, oh, God. Haunting uh, you. How, how do we change the bro culture of writers' rooms, of, or brackets of some writers' rooms? Okay, it's... It's not actually that complicated. It, it can be um, uh, solved in three words. Hire more women. Right. I did it! I did it! <laughs> it's not, yeah. Uh, is, uh, is grad school a waste of time? Uh, <laughs> well, some, I get the sense that some people in this room are really well, invested in your did, answer. For did, for did, did for parents... Did a parent or a grad school student <laughs> ask this question? It, it says for TV specifically, I mean. Oh. What do you think, what, what do you think the answer to that is? Uh, everyone takes a different route, so I don't know. Do you think yes, though? <laughs> what are you going to learn at grad school to be a writer? Yeah. You just, you, unless, unless, you, unless you're writing all the time. It's like, like you say in the book, really writing is something you just have yeah. to do. Yeah. I, I love the best, uh, I hope it's not here. I'm just checking that the worst question you could possibly be asked is not here. No, it's not. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, when people say... Uh, where do you get your ideas? You, yeah, and you, your answer is... Oh. It's, it's the same as asking people... How do you grow your hair? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just, just happens. Yeah, stuff They come out, out of your head. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, What's your advice for a young woman aspiring to go into a male-dominated field? Oh, brackets, and she's a little scared. And she's... And she's a little scared. Well, she's feeling the right thing. Right. <laughs> and to, um, you know, you can't... Um, now I'm going to be sincere. Yeah. It's like, don't let your fears overwhelm your desires. Right. So, yeah, that's... it's not funny. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that, no, I yeah. think that's a really, really good point, though, because even, like, during the introduction, she said I was fearless, which couldn't be biologically further from the truth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a brave human being, but my desires, I think uh, there are times when I've seemed fearless, it's only because I want the thing more than I want to be scared. That's right. Yeah, so and then, and that's great advice. Um, the other piece of advice is... It should be the easiest thing in the world to try something new. Because if you do it and succeed, that's great. And if you do it and fail, you had the perfect excuse. I've never done it before. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, like, yeah. why not try it? I guess it's not clear. What's your, what's your advice for a young woman to go into a male-dominated field? I'm hoping this isn't the NFL. <laughs> because then my... My, my answer would be, don't do that. It, yeah, seems, don't, yeah. it seems like there are some real problems there. What is your favorite Dorothy Parker quote? Or any favorite quote at all, it says. Wow, that got broad at the end. Uh, yeah. No, I, my favorite one and, uh, is um, actually something, I'm, I'm going to say go with something Robert Benchley said to Dorothy Parker, who had a miscarriage 
and he supposedly said to her, that's what you get for putting all your eggs in one bastard. <laughs> and I just Ooh. thought, like, <laughs> I don't think I could have been friends with him. <laughs> People, Nell. Uh, uh, oh, that's, that was the last question. And then, uh, so then uh, we're just at the reminder. Wow. That was it. The reminder is that Nell will be signing just the funny parts oh. afterwards. Or, she, or she'll, you'll sign any books, right? <laughs> a, any books you have with you. Uh, I, I can't thank you oh, enough thank for being here. You. You know, I, I, I love this book so much. Oh. It's so great. <laughs> Nell Scoville, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.